You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. And so this is why we do what we do. Welcome. Your favorite consumable psychology podcast. <laughs> there you go. And so let's start by, uh, I'm going to ask you a quick question. Uh, Ryan and our listeners as well, I suppose, do you drink wine? Occasionally, maybe two to three times a year. Okay. Very infrequent. How about you? Nope. <laughs> Not a wine drinker. I imagine some of our listeners out there are wine drinkers, which is great, you know? This is not about telling you not to be a wine drinker. This is about something else. So, Ryan, what do you know about sommeliers? I know that there is a documentary on Netflix uh, that is about sommeliers. Okay. I've heard a, a colleague in the field that talk about it recently. So I've, I'm about halfway through it. Um, I tried to expedite that before this recording, but I haven't finished. All right. Um, yeah, they smell, taste wines, and are just amazing, apparently. There's different tiers that you can earn and True. kind of test your way through it's very very hard to become a master sommelier accurate i don't remember what it was 250 people in 40 years or something like that have passed oh i, I did see that stat that's um, cool that's not a exact but i think it's pretty close yeah that's that's i, I think i've exhausted a lot of my knowledge on sommeliers <laughs> <laughs> okay so yeah we're talking about sommeliers today and not about like necessarily being able to uh, learning about or being able to sense the different flavors or what sommeliers are doing. But actually, interestingly, the other cues that affect the flavor and perception of the flavor of the wines that they're drinking. And so that's uh, that's the topic of this discussion is to break down sort of what is going on with those people who are the the wine tasting connoisseurs, those who their profession oftentimes is designed around specifically um, this tasting of wines and description of wines and that sort of thing. My understanding is that they also help pair it with foods and that this is becoming a more, more frequent thing. Like they, in a way, either work with or start to replace chefs um, in that regard of like what should be paired together. Well, you and know, this is their words, not mine. Like, I don't want to make any any chefs out there upset that are listening <laughs> to this right now. We'll get into uh, the history here in just a moment, but they they kind of actually began that way. So I don't I don't know if they're getting more that way. That's sort of always been what they do, is uh, is that they are recommending and describing wines to to go with food and to go with dinner and to be the thing that you try when you go to some restaurant of some sort all right so let's dive into the term first because it's actually got this weird translation or like origination right yeah well it's it's there are people who think that the the history that has been portrayed is not necessarily perfectly accurate but right now it seems like most people believe that the word sommelier began as sommelier which is an old french word meaning pack animal of all things and these pack animals were watched over by someone who was called a sommelier <laughs> So someone who, uh, the, the sommelier is the pack animal and the person who watches over that pack animal, the sommelier, uh, this, and again, French, and this eventually became, uh, sum, sommelier, maybe I'm trying my, we should, we should call down our buddy, uh, Simon over in Paris. Oh yeah. Very good. Help us out on this one. Yeah. Which, but that, so sommelier, maybe. yeah, S O M M E L I E R. Correct. That's the current spelling. So this is, uh, before it turned into that, it was S O U M E l-i-e-r and this was uh and here's the description that i got specifically someone who transported supplies um and so this is sort of the person who is i don't know like the ups guy (laughs) (laughs) ups man back in the day (laughs) back in the day and so um finally uh, over time this this eventually turned into the current version which is some sommelier and this uh, actually meant a transporter for specific types of cargo and this again was mostly wine and cigars and that was sort of the evolution of the term sommelier started with this just sort of transportation then the person who watched over the transportation the person who was in charge of transportation of particular goods and those goods tended to be things like cigars and wine apparently there's also cigar sommeliers there are actually yeah there's a whole list of things we're gonna go over in just a moment of uh, different versions of sommeliers you can tell i didn't read the notes before we hit record (laughs) this is fun 
All right, so we know the etymology of the word. What is next, Abraham? Well, so the modern use of this term now seems to mostly refer pretty much exclusively to the profession of someone who is called a quote-unquote wine chef, and specifically, as you mentioned, one that recommends sort of wine and food pairings at restaurants. And one source essentially credits the French Revolution for the beginning of modern sommeliers. This is the description that they gave, was that these were people who worked for the, the elites. They worked for the rich people. They were in their houses, and they were almost like sort of a butler that would worked with their chef. And so at dinner, then this person would come out and they would say, you know, this is the wine that you should have, that sort of thing. And when the French Revolution happened and many, many, many of the aristocracy were imprisoned or killed, these people that worked in their houses were now out of work. And so what they did is out of a job, they, they went uh, with both the, sh the, the food professionals and these uh, wine professionals. They opened some of the world's first restaurants that were restaurants that actually had menus because there were always things where like you could go somewhere and get food. But these were the first time where you had menus that had like specific things available and they worked together to create the experience of this is what you can have and this is the wine that we'd recommend go with that sort of thing. Interesting. I had no clue. And another vein, I guess, another common practice of sommeliers is to attend wine tasting and dazzle people by their ability to describe in tremendous detail, like super, super specific detail oftentimes, flavors in the wine as well as seemingly impossible to know information such as uh, the exact year, like really close to the exact year, the region in which it was grown, the conditions of the grapes. I saw people pointing out the different flavors, relating them to... Anything from uh, garden hoses to grandma's closets to the different fruits that were probably also included in the blend. It gets extremely specific. Yeah, there are quite a few. There's quite a range of terms that are used to describe the experience of tasting wines that exists. But it's really interesting, I think, to understand how how this works, both with respect to training and what sommeliers are capable of doing. And so... If you do just a quick search on Somalia research, it turns up a litany of studies that more or less seem to kind of embarrass the claim of sommeliers that they are capable of doing what they claim to be capable of doing. And I found the opposite as well. A lot of wine magazines or publication outlets or websites are out there putting the opposite out there. They're trying to like reinterpret this research and, and it sounds like do a little bit of damage control or put out an alternative I don't know, perspective on that research? Yeah, I mean, interestingly, some of them know where their sort of limits are with how much they can really tell. And some of them really buy into the idea that they have sort of these superpowers, super sniffers and super tongues and that sort of thing that they're able to use to do this, this pretty remarkable, I guess, almost like detective work with their wine tasting. So um, one of the studies that we're going to start with, in 2001, a doctoral student, I believe he's a doctoral student, named Frederick Brochet in France, he published his dissertation research. And in this, he demonstrated that color was one of the actually more important variables affecting one's sense of taste, just the color, and specifically in wine. And to do this, he gathered 54 onology students. And so onology is the study of wine and everything about it, basically, everything you need to know about wine. And one source simply referred to his participants simply as wine experts, but I'm inclined to believe the one that's more specific just because it provides that clarification that these were students. Okay. So just, you know, to sort of know that we're not, uh, we want to be as true to the study as possible. Yeah. So he was giving them wine and asked them to describe it, essentially? Right. He gave them red wine and white wine, and he asked them to describe the wines that he gave to them. He recorded their answers and then coded them by how often they used those answers. So they would describe the white wine largely using words such as floral and honey, lemon, peach, that sort of thing. Things that you'd associate with these lighter colors, fruitier flavors, that sort of stuff, right? But, but then plot twists, right? Right. <laughs> um, well, and then they describe those red wines as having a flavor that was sort of like chicory, raspberry, cedar, cherry, flavors that you would associate with a sort of more bitter, bolder, more red wine associated type of taste. And I was a little trigger happy. This is where the plot twist comes in. Right. Then what he did is he took the, the white wine that he used, he poured it into all 54 glasses and put red food coloring in half of the glasses. So same exact wine, 
same exact wine, poured it into glasses, and then just made them look red by pouring some red food coloring into it. And the second time that he gave the students these, these glasses of wine, they mostly described the same terms for the red colored white wine as they had for the red wine. So they got a glass of white wine with red food coloring in it, not knowing that it was food colored. And they would describe it as being chicory, raspberry, cedar, cherry, having these bitter, rich, bold, and bitter flavors that were associated with those red wines. And he did nothing but change the color of the wine. And so essentially, there's, you know, there are many ways you could potentially interpret this. But he was pointing out that at the very least, you could say that the color of the wine affects how one will describe their perception of the taste of that wine which I think is important when you get to people who are going to be recommending your wine and who are going to be talking about the quality of wine, that one of the things that they may not know that they're attending to is the color. He also replicated this, but put a little bit of a twist in there, right? Right. Yeah. Later, what he did is he took a red wine. It was the, it was a Bordeaux. He took the exact same Bordeaux and he poured it into two different bottles. One was this cheap bottle with a cheap label that the people who were drinking it knew that it was cheap. And then the other one was this expensive brand name bottle that he poured this, the same exact wine. So remember, starts with the same type of wine, pours that same wine into two bottles, one with this label recognized as being cheap and one with the label recognized as being expensive, and then gave these to expert sommeliers this time. And they gave almost opposite descriptions for the two different glasses that they tried based uh, for, uh, for the taste. And so they described that cheaper bottle of wine as bottle being the important thing because it's the exact same wine the cheaper bottle of wine is flat short and weak and then when they had the expensive glass the expensive bottle described it as being woody complex agreeable and balanced Ooh. yeah <laughs> i found uh, a few different references to research like this that was completed with uh, you know different different levels of uh strictness maybe and the yeah. methods and such um but it always followed that the Things that were pricier, people described in different ways and they started to gravitate towards when it came to their preference or uh, which one they would choose to buy or which one, how they would describe it, like so many different ways. And what's so clever about this one is it wasn't even, it wasn't even the actual price. It was the exact same wine, yeah. but gave the perception that there was an association with a different price because one might have been able to make the case, I think that, well, people describe things that have a different price as being better because they are better. And that's why they cost more. And while that might be true for some things, at least with respect to wine, the pe people cannot seem to actually tell the difference between a wine that is expensive and a wine that is cheap, at least not with respect to the taste, but they are attending to and perceiving it, or at least describing their perception of it as being different based on the bottle that it comes in. And again, nothing else about the bottle except the label. That was the only thing that was different. That's insane. Yeah. So you also found some stuff on uh, Robert Hod. Who is it? Hodgson. I, Hodgson. I believe Hodgson is how it's pronounced. Um, I didn't read the the one that you have here though. So let's hit yours first, and then we'll talk about what I found. Yeah. So um, in this test, Robert Hodgson he blindfolded judges at a wine tasting competition. So this is, I believe, one that goes on in California. Was interested in these judges were evaluating these sommeliers on their performance on these wine tests. And he wanted to see how well do the judges do on these tests. So he blindfolded them and asked them to rate using the scale that they use d different glasses of wine. And what he did is he gave them the same glass over and over and over again. And 90% of the judges gave ratings that varied essentially tasting different wines every time, even though it was the same glass of wine every time. So they would give it various ratings of quality uh, even though it was the same exact thing. And again, they're showing that the visual cues are very important in how one describes their perception of the taste. And my understanding is that he is in this industry. He's over at the time was in California. Mm -hmm. I'm sure still is. And he judges himself. Did you find that at all? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He was a judge. Yeah. I find him as this interesting middle ground because the piece that I found on him, he was looking at the probability of something winning a gold and then winning a gold again elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And essentially, if you win a gold in some sort of taste test or wherever it is, your chances of winning a gold again elsewhere are completely left up to that. It's chances. Oh, okay. So they looked at the a few different things. We'll link this in the show notes for sure. 
but he looked at over 2,400 different wines that were entered in three different comp, uh, competitions, and he found that it essentially matches up that uh, with the probability. The statistical probability matches up with the actual chances of winning a gold. Like, there is no predictable way. Um, like, what may win a gold in one place, your chances of winning a gold are purely left up to chance. That's all he found. Now, is this based on the wine or the person tasting the wine? The wine itself. The wine itself. Okay, so, yeah, I hear what you're saying. I'll, I'll just say it back and make sure that I'm yeah, understanding you. you. Yeah, because you, you found something You found something different from me, which is great, that the uh, essentially he would take a bottle of wine, have it rated by one set of judges, take it somewhere else, and have it rated by another set of judges. And what they were going to rate it as was... Uh, there was no consistency. You couldn't get the same rating for the same bottle of wine across different judges. You'd have the spectrum of some people might rate it really highly, some people might rate it really low, and people essentially rate it everywhere in between because they're not attending to the the actual features of the wine itself. They're attending to something else, and there are other things that are affecting their description of their perception of the taste of it other than just what is coming in the glass yes beautifully said except all that was different is it was a post hoc analysis of winners from three different competitions that's where that 2440 oh, different bottles of wine came from so he was trying to remove himself right from the research Got itself it. or like having more compounds i guess it sounds like i see and okay. what i've seen in articles is that uh this is not research articles but like where this is going is my understanding is he and others are trying to figure out how do you create an objective way to actually measure these sort of things that they could go down that route. So even though it's statistically set up as just pure chance, he believes it's not chance and that you can somehow craft a, a good objective way and then maybe teach the world to do that? Or I don't know. I don't know where that'll go. There, it's, it's I'm skeptical. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's fun because that's, that's not the first time people have tried to take an, a subjective mystical non-thing and tried to turn into an objective thing and found that they struggle to do so and i am thinking of our intelligence episode but others that that we've done where it's like let's let's see if we can wrap some objectivity around this and then there's not really the option to do that because it lacks the necessary features of a thing inside of reality that could be objective it's based more on the the faith in the system than the science of the system. Yeah. Uh, another example of, of one of these people, there was a, a well-known skeptic named Richard Wiseman, and he ran another little experiment where he purchased bottles of wine ranging from 5 to $50. Now, I don't know anything about wine. It seems to me like I would not want to pay $50 for a bottle of wine. But maybe that's on the lower end of what's available. But anyway, he took these and he asked people simply to rate which were more expensive. And again, it, some people might argue that, well, there isn't really that much of a difference between five and 50 bottles. You got to get up into the eight and nine hundred dollar range before it makes a difference. Unclear. But let's just say that he had the, the, the approach of simply saying which one's more expensive and having a tenfold increase in the price seems like a relatively reasonable way to approach at least the general ability to detect this. And he did this as a double blind experiment, which means that neither the participant nor the person who was delivering the wine to that participant knew what wine that participant was getting. Beautiful. That they were tasting. Yeah. And what's interesting is that people guessed at chance levels, so about 50% accurate, 50% inaccurate, if it was cheap or expensive, basically just guessing. You know, they couldn't actually tell the difference. And then people did even worse than chance on some of them, getting, the, getting them wrong significantly more often than getting them correct. Also pretty interesting. Essentially, what they did is they chose one of the cheapest bottles of wine as being the most expensive for one of the types of wine that he used. Which so it kind of supports the idea that cheaper bottle of wines are perfectly good and maybe even better than the more expensive wine you'd be you'd be trying to purchase to go with your your dinner or just to have a glass of wine in the evening. <laughs> I I was uh, I saw this reference in a video. I couldn't find the source. I'm gonna try to find it swingly can, but I found some research lines where people were apparently playing around with similar things, but they were adding bitters. Okay. Uh, bitter agents yeah. to try to make the the perceived higher quality ones actually objectively worse okay to see if people would still choose them yeah and they were able to do that but it adds a whole another layer of is it really objectively worse and Fair. it, it might have been more of a marketing thing and a fun click through bait video you know yeah. to get some more clicks for somebody but this whole world's kind of fascinating yeah so there's 
the thing I think that was the most important piece of research that I was able to find in all of this was a study that was published in 1996 in the prestigious journal of experimental psychology. And I mean, I, I like, this is, this is the, like the big thing I think that I almost want to save for like a big aha moment, but I don't know how to do a big reveal. So <laughs> we're just going to go through it. And essentially in the study, they concluded that experts, experts in wine tasting could not reliably distinguish more than four or five flavors. What? Five. <laughs> That's so few. Even though the wine experts on average will boast at least, well, on average. So they're boasting around six and often many, many more and usually in incredible detail. And so one review in an article I was reading in preparation for this listed um, a sommelier's description of wine that had more than a dozen flavors, including, of all things, mangoes with the peel on. <laughs> I don't even know how you'd know. <laughs> like, that's the thing. You're, that's so specific. Anyway, so, I mean, that's pretty remarkable. You'd think, I feel like I can tell the difference between five or six flavors or four or five fl flavors throughout, like, just normal day. But again, this was that in this article, they, they concluded that they couldn't reliably distinguish more than four or five. Like some people could distinguish more than that, but not reliably, not consistently. Okay. You know? um, but Which like, is important yeah, that's to remember. Important. <laughs> so that seems to be the upper limit of how different you can have. You can get up to about five different flavors of wine before you've run out of things so that you can, you can det detect. Something in a prestigious journal usually begs for uh, some sort of counter study. Was there anything out there that you found? Well, there was one attempt, a 2006 study. This is actually closer to the one that uh, Richard Wiseman did. They found slightly above average preference for more expensive wine among wine experts. I didn't actually dig in to ensure that they had done the same double-blind controls, that they had controlled for also the, the visual cues that may have been present or anything else that may have been present that were cues. And again... It was a slightly above average preference for the more expensive wines. And all that really, that doesn't actually say that they are better at detecting those flavors, just that they did prefer more expensive bottles of wine slightly. All right. So what's another interesting thing is that many wine experts seem to actually know, and winemakers too, they seem to know that this there is some sort of junk science, at least to some degree, and the idea of there being this really detailed and high level of skill that's available with people who are sommeliers. One wine blogger even wrote that, quote, there is no hard science involved in reviewing wine, no real way to quantify results, no test cases, and certainly no verifiable set of standards that everyone adheres to. Everyone makes up their own process for reviewing, end quote. And that doesn't necessarily condemn the idea that they could tell the difference between wines but they kind of get the fact that this is super subjective and it's not really based on the qualities of the wine itself as much as it is the subjective experience of tasting the wine and all the things that sort of go into that which is totally respectable just right. keep it in that lane right? right like your lane is we like to taste things and we're not sure how we do it but we like to taste them and tell other people about how we pair those up and how good they are and we like to have, I don't know, bar arguments about the differences between them. Right, yeah, and, exactly. End of story. Yeah, it can be like, I like these things. I like to try different ones. I don't know how well I can tell the difference between them all, but I think that I can. Here are the things that I think taste good with other things. Understanding that people are going to be different, your tastes are going to be different, and your tastes are going to change based on a lot of things in the moment. And that's no difference in me saying, like, the hike that I enjoyed last summer is, like, the best one ever and blah, 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 blah right? Or, like, that's a the, great example. the powder line on the hills I'm going to go hit this December in the Sierras, like... That it is like it's cool to do those things, but it's it's different when you start to bring in that there's a hard science when there isn't a science there, right? Well, and the amount of money that people pay for these type of services, for these type of experiences, it ends up being just a status symbol. It's not actually higher quality. It's just like I can and am willing to pay more money for a pretend thing than I am for a legitimate thing. Which is also cool. Yeah. Just like disclose that. Right. Exactly. Right? <laughs> just it's just being on the up and up, you know? It's just yeah. being forthcoming with what is accurate and real and what is not. So let's actually dive in, I guess, then to 
from the psychological point of view, from the scientific point of view, what's going on here with wine tasting and sommeliers and why does it seem like they can describe these things in the extent to which they describe them? Sometimes even getting it very, very correct with extraordinarily obscure details. And I will preface this. If anyone's really pissed right now, I do know someone that is from the more hard science area that wants to really investigate this. So we could offer up uh, his contact information. Yeah, reach out yeah. to us. We'll see if we if uh, he's interested and available, we can potentially put you in touch. I know he's interested. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you guys, uh, whoever is doing this, you know, work together and we'll, we'd be perfectly happy to do a follow up on whatever happens outside of that that pairing if you will yeah <laughs> I was gonna say teaming up but i wanted to go with the pun so <laughs> all right enough being punny so our, our goal here is to dive into like what's going on and i think the first thing is our sense of taste is not very sharp yeah and right? it doesn't need to be really you know that's not all that useful in a lot of ways sweet and salty that's what we need right <laughs> basic you know i mean yeah we can obviously detect other things and i think that um Having done this research now, it'd be really, it inspired me to, uh, you know, at least put on the queue, uh, doing an episode later on, on the different tastes that have, and the research that's been done with that. And I think that's, it's a very interesting thing in and of its, in itself, but there are a lot of cues that go into uh, perception of taste and they're not, they don't all have to do with just our, what, what our tongues are capable of doing. Our tongues aren't capable of doing as much as we'd like to believe that they're capable of doing. And so that's, that's the first point on this. Second, we're talking about quite literally rotting grape juice, right? <laughs> that's yeah. what it is. So there might be these subtle differences that exist across these different types of wines, but it is pretty subtle because it's rotting grape juice and then it's going to be affected by a lot of things, first of all. Um, but it's also made complicated by the fact that Alcohol that accompanies wine, because that's what wine is, it actually does not improve our senses, amazingly. It doesn't heighten our awareness of things. It really actually does the opposite. So repeated tasting and uh, practice with tasting, although practice leads to better performance at things, generally speaking, in the immediate time frame in which this is taking place, the more tasting that occurs, the less good at it you're going to be because you are drinking the thing or consuming, even if you're spitting it out, a substance that is powerful enough and effective enough to actually reduce the threshold of those, or I guess it, what's the word I'm looking for? Increases or reduces the threshold. It makes it more difficult to distinguish those flavors. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. That's a better way to put it. Yeah. And then... I guess finally on, on that sort of same note is that the bitterness and the power of those flavors are, are pretty strong and they're likely to overpower the more subtle flavors that could be available that, that might be part of the actual wine. They also might not be part of the wine and you're tasting something else, but that's there. It might be a little bit of a side tangent, but it reminds me of uh, my mom's got this cinnamon roll recipe and there's a secret ingredient that nobody can ever put their finger on. And it is sugar. Nope. Oh, <laughs> you have any other guesses? Uh, well, I don't know what it tastes like, <laughs> but most things you can't taste it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, it's uh, it is a like what is it? It's a dry potato like mix for like making. Oh, okay. Mashed potatoes. Yeah, it'd be nobody starchy. can. Yeah, nobody can put their finger on it ever. Um, when you tell people, sometimes you're like, "Oh, I thought I tasted something different." <laughs> <laughs> Do you know if like, any? If did you, you really like? It'd be cool to try doing it where it's included in one version of it and not in the other and see if you can tell the difference because yeah. I'd be willing to bet it'd be difficult to tell the difference. Yeah. I'm guessing it's a texture thing. Right. Um, I mean, it's more starchy. Yeah. So that could be. All right. Anyhow, sorry for the tangent here. No. Um, but the thing is, like, there's a lot of other cues that people are probably paying attention to, right? I would guess there's a lot of social cues, maybe. Yeah, and that's sort of what we've been hinting as we've been going through this discussion is that visual cues such as the bottle itself, the label of the bottle, the color of the bottle, the color of the wine, the price tag of the bottle. Interestingly, and very importantly, the glass that it comes in has a significant effect um, I'll go into it in just a moment. And in the aesthetic of the environment in which the wine is being tasted, all of those things can actually significantly alter the perception of, or at least the description of the flavor of the wine. And this is actually true for food as well. And so uh, there was one study, and I didn't look it up again for this one, and I wish I had now, but I, I, I had read one study where they 
tried the same wine in different glasses and had people reporting different flavors depending on the glass. And as I, if I remember correctly, they're actually somewhat consistent with the glass type, but the but again, the flavor different with the uh, wine. So they take the same wine and put it in like a tall skinny glass or sort of a large wine glass that had a big open mouth or like a smaller wine glass and like the stem, all these things were different. And the, the authors in that one, as I recall, were arguing that the there is a visual cue associated with the glass as well as the way that the glass either traps or releases the smell, which would affect the flavor potentially. But the, like, like I said, I, I might be forgetting the exact details, but as I recall that you'd have people rating somewhat similar flavors for the glass type, even though it was the exact same type of wine. And then they'd give a different description for a different glass type. Again, even though it was the same type of wine and that there was somewhat consistent there, but that they at least did see that there was a difference based on the, the, glass that the wine was delivered in so drinking uh, wine out of a coffee mug might actually alter how you perceive <laughs> the flavor versus out of a wine glass all right fair makes sense especially if there's leftover coffee in there yeah right <laughs> all right so let's shift into auditory cues let's say that there's some sort of like i don't know fancy french music that's playing over when you're when you get your bottle and when you pop it and when you're pouring it like does does that sort of start affecting things as well does it alter well if you had to ask then you know the answer <laughs> probably <laughs> yes um yeah so interestingly the overall ambiance of the place that you're in and the music that you're listening to they all can affect the preparation that you have before you consume the wine and that can affect then your again report of your perception of that taste and the flavor that you hear. Now, interestingly, University of Oxford professor Charles Spence, which really sounds like the name of a University of Oxford professor, <laughs> professor, uh, he conducted a study in which he could reliably affect participants' perception of the flavor of a chocolate bar. And again, using the same chocolate bar, but he'd have them listen to different types of music. And what he had with certain types of music, people report that the chocolate was more bitter. And with different types of music, they would re report that the chocolate was sweeter. All the same chocolate, but was able to reliably affect that with those auditory cues. And again, we rely on, we are constantly exposed to and rely on these cues that surround us in our environment all the time, even though we don't always pay attention to what they are. So is this why I could get through $5 boxed wine listening to heavy metal in my college days? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. To get through, <laughs> through boxed wine, you need exactly heavy metal. <laughs> well, I, I, for anyone that doesn't know, I, I love heavy metal as well and like those different genres. So yeah, that's what I was playing with there. No, you might have... Uh, I think that honestly, the type of music is going to be somewhat important if you're unfamiliar with it, but probably, and I don't, I don't know, I'm speculating now, but it, it, I would guess that more familiar music would have a more favorable pairing with food that you like than um, music that you actively do not like, but music that you're neutral to and unfamiliar with, again, he could reliably produce these different descriptions of the flavors based on what they were listening to, which is, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Presumably those things would alter over time as well as you've developed more of a learning history with the experience of those flavors and that auditory cue. But at least he was able to get this reliable result with respect to his research that he was doing, which is kind of cool. Yeah, super cool. All right. So the next segue would be that probably most importantly is what you're told about a wine or as we'll see in a second, anything, even water, can significantly alter the way in which you respond towards it, right? Including your taste and your preference. Yeah, and I mean, that's part of an overall discussion about how remarkably powerful our language can be in affecting how we perceive the world around us. But specifically, yeah, like those visual cues and auditory cues are things that were not even language, but you can include language in those. The price tag is actually a languaging cue. But you can include language in those that also then affects how people report. And again, telling someone that's cheap versus expensive, telling someone, giving them a description of what the wine is going to taste like before they get it. Have you ever had the experience of going to eat something and maybe you weren't paying attention to what it was or you thought it was something other than what it was and you take a bite and it's you get a flavor you completely weren't expecting and the reaction to that is usually something like disgust yeah and like what yeah what is this last night i went to a place that was serving a lot of mexican food it was called jalapenos i got their jalapeno salsa and it tastes like carrots weird like there was too much carrot juice and there was no jalapeno. Uh, and like that literally happened last night. Or what if it's something where you, you go to 
Oh, I have an example of this actually. There's uh, there are chocolates that you can get that have like cayenne pepper in them, and so you bite in expecting something. This is the worst experience ever. <laughs> I love it. I love chocolate. I cannot stand when it's hot and spicy. Oh, I like it. <laughs> so I'll uh, save all my chocolates for you. Yeah. So if you don't know and you bite into expecting something sweet and instead you get something spicy, even someone who likes spicy things might immediately have the experience of, ugh, that's gross, that sort of thing, you know? So, inter- yeah, those those things that are our expectations, which are verbal cues that are private to us and then the verbal cues that we get from others around us telling us this is good or this is not good or this is the thing that you're going to experience flavor wise but probably talking about food and drink here then that will also affect then how you report your experience with that flavor afterward which is kind of interesting and so we have a specific clip we're not really gonna we're not gonna play the clip but there was an episode of uh, Penn and Teller I think it was from their tv show they had yeah and uh, in which they, based on the resolution, it definitely definitely was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in which they were doing the same thing as a sommelier, but with water. Yeah, it's amazing. It's beautiful. I love the work that they do. Right. So it's real simple. You just you create a menu. You make up some cool names. You create some different pricing structures. Uh, I would be willing to bet that their prices were ranging. I think they said from like six to eight fifty, but. It's probably per bottle. Yeah, per yeah. bottle. But today's it's probably close to double that. Sure. Um, it was an older clip. And they you're in a fancy, nice restaurant. Everyone was in business cash or better, I would say. Yep. Out on dates. Yep. Anniversaries. And you selected one of those to try. He tried to encourage two, it looked like. You would taste them. And again, this is a wine steward. Serving bottles of water. Yes. I think before bottled water was huge and all over the place, we can probably be safe to say. We'll have to look at the date. Unclear. But, spoiler alert, he filled them all up with the uh, <laughs> the hose Yeah. out back. Yeah, water from like a garden hose. <laughs> Tap water from a garden hose. Yes. And... He asked people, to, you know, what do you think of it? All the way down to leading questions of would you, what do you think of it is uh, as compared to like tap water and such. Right. And resounding everybody in the video clip was talking about how how the flavor was so different and comparing them to one another. And yeah. then at the very end, there's a reveal of, hey, this is uh, tap water from the hose. And right. people handled it really well from what I saw. Yeah, um, they, I'm they assuming laughed. if they didn't handle it well, they weren't signing the waivers at the end. So that's probably, yeah, why probably they not. included. Yes, yeah, it's, but it's brilliant, beautiful. Makes me want to retry it. <laughs> Try the, that experiment again? Yeah. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, so he, and I think important to include is he would bring them those bottles and he would say like, this one is from this region of the world. It has this crisp, refreshing flavor. And this one has been filtered through this natural system in the rainforest and has this spider at the bottom what is that a spider spider at the bottom (laughs) yeah you went from like the himalaya mountains and an iceberg from there down to one of them literally had a fake spider that had no toxins in the water because it was purified and it was from the amazon right and Uh, and then had people try them and then ask them that oh yeah this is much better than tap water oh this one tastes completely different from the other one it's smoother i can really i can really taste how pure it is or or i can really sense the minerals in this one and again all the exact same source all from tap water and then <laughs> gave that reveal. And just that's exactly the point in here of wine can have a similar thing. You bring it in and, and it's actually got flavors for one thing. And <laughs> so, so <laughs> you don't have to make up the mineral flavors. Right? Exactly. There are flavors there. And then you just get to play with those expectations by telling people this is a, a nice bold cherry flavor when it could be like made from apples. I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, and so then that'll affect people's experience when tasting it. So it, it, there's all of these. I saw a video that was asking, it was a sommelier that was asking the people recording the interview of her. And she was asking them, do you ever go out and lick rocks? Because apparently she travels around and she licks rocks to try to be able to taste and discriminate the differences between the soils so that she can start to increase her ability to be able to that sounds where it's coming from in the world. Unsanitary. Yeah. I mean, a teach their own. I don't know. Do I, the level that people go to, man. I hope she has all of her. I respect the passion. Today. I want that to be clear. I respect the passion for it. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. 
Where were we? Oh, I mean, I just wanted to end on, you know, we talked about the fact that there's visual cues, auditory cues, and these verbal cues. They're atmospheric cues, the temperature, the comfort, your relative level of hunger, your mood. All of those things all can affect your perception of the taste of foods and beverages. And so it's not so clear as, you know, you're a professional who gets trained to detect all these things because so many variables are still affecting your senses. You're going to be making it up to some extent, basically a large extent, because there's no, we just can't detect that many flavors. And if we hear from any ma- master sommeliers, am I saying that right? Yeah. Okay. I've been saying that way the whole time. I'm glad so. Uh, I'd be really interested in chatting more on the phone off record just because I, I want to understand the master process more. Yeah. I'm curious if the masters are the only ones involved in the master process. I feel like there could be some interesting ways to study that. Yeah. I want to give you the benefit of the doubt, but it has to be the right way right? Yeah. We, to really test this out. So. That's yeah. all I want to say. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd be curious to yeah to hear any other feedback that people have. Uh, we're basing this on the research that's been done, not particularly flattering, and then also generally our understanding of how sort of psychology and flavor works. Well, again, based on the research, but yeah, this is the, compiling those things together. It, it paints a picture of there are a lot of things going on when you're tasting something, and the idea that you could reliably detect and describe these things in an objective way is not borne out by that research. Yeah. I think is the sort of the, the short, easy way to say it, but there's some other interesting things to note before we wrap up. Of course, yeah. there are training programs to officially become a sommelier and become, become an, certified as one. Yeah. I think there's at least four different levels that I saw out there. Master being the top one for sure. Yeah, there are. The name sommelier is not actually protected by the certification and virtually anyone can call themselves a sommelier with zero training. I could say I'm a sommelier. I could even go to a restaurant and say I'm a sommelier. You might piss could, a lot of people off, but there's yeah. no licensure and like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and, and so that's, that is an interesting thing I think to note, but Obviously, they're going to ask about your training and experience, and they're going to want a, a record of your employment working as a sommelier, that sort of thing. So, yeah, there is no formal training that is required to become one of these uh, sommeliers, correct? Yeah, a certified regardless sommelier. Of, yeah, regardless of the level. Yeah, you can just get into the business and then pay to take the exam and become a certified sommelier without having gone through a training program. Which is kind of cool. Like I saw one gentleman that was on the documentary that had been in there in a year because he just like dedicated the time and started studying his butt off. Yeah. So I do like that that's open, I guess. Yeah. If you're going to go into a business that's based on nothing real, then you may as well not pay for the training program. <laughs> right. <laughs> You'd be just as good at it as anyone who went through a training program. <laughs> what else here? There's a couple more points. Yeah. Well, so as you mentioned at the beginning, there are other types of sommeliers um, and specifically for beverages, they call themselves sommelier of their beverage of choice. So you you have whiskey sommeliers, beer sommeliers. Is the same milk? Y- yeah. It there, says milk. There are milk sommeliers, uh, sake sommeliers, and then now there was that whole uh, water steward from the Penn and Teller thing, but apparently that is like legitimately a water sommelier is a thing. Oh, okay. Maybe it's now. A little it, bit of a sad note. Yeah. Do you think they created that? That joke like turned it into a real thing. I don't know. I wonder sometimes if a marketing joke turns into something like that or a, you know, there, you know, I I wasn't sure if we should ever do an episode on this, but there is some interesting research to suggest that the more someone hears something, the more they are, the more likely they are to believe it, even if they have told that it's false. The Trump effect. Is that the working title? I, I don't, maybe, I don't know. I mean, but yeah, the, the, whenever you say something to someone, even if you were to, again, tell them that it's false, like the if you were to say over and over again the the moon landing hoax is a conspiracy theory that's wrong we did land on the moon just talking about the moon landing as a hoax might actually have result in people believing it's a hoax even when you say that is not a conspiracy we did land on the moon to go with it there is a behavioral research study on this as well oh cool i will find it we should pull that in i know the colleague to ask okay so now now i think we should do an episode on this when i was leaning away from it before no yeah it's when you talk about the not thing it actually leaves uh in a really loose sense it leaves the the actual relation there yeah and it drops the not got it yeah all right interesting to know um, last thing on this that I had is that, as you mentioned, there are four levels of sommelier going from in- increasing in their level of prestige. You have introductory sommelier, advanced sommelier, certified sommelier, and finally a master sommelier, of which there are very, very few. <laughs> yeah, I think there's yeah, 40, 50 max. 
Like it's very few people that have passed it. I didn't see the numbers on it, but if you're one of those people, reach out. Yeah. Any any one of those levels, we'd be happy to hear from you. Cool. So take home. So let's let's bring this home. Yeah. Okay. Well, so like everything else that we experience, as I mentioned before, we're subject to a large variety of cues that we react to some knowingly, some not knowingly. There's just way too much out there in the world that we can perceive that we would be ineffective organisms if we attended all of them at the same level of attention constantly. Like the fact that we focus our attention on specific relevant cues is a very advantageous trait to have um, as as an organism evolves because otherwise you you are constantly distracted by everything that's going on nothing has relative importance everything is equally important or like or the the perception of things is so increased that it at least is difficult to focus on the things that are important and so that's part of it's important to understand that going into the idea that we have such fine discrimin discriminable I guess, skills that can be developed with respect to something as subtle as those weird little notes and cues that people believe that they're perceiving yeah. when they taste wine. It seems like all wine tastes pretty much the same. Is that fair to say? I mean, as far as we can detect, varies w reliably within four or five flavors. <laughs> um, that seems to be about it. Yeah. I don't know. It seems like... The price is one of the most significant things that affects the way in which you perceive it. So I guess if you want to feel like a million bucks, maybe buy the million dollar bottle. Yeah. Right. But you don't need to. It sounds like. Yeah. You if can you just want to enjoy the taste of whatever it is. Right. Yeah. If, if you, you you can fool yourself into believing you're tasting something better by spending more on it. You can also buy some boxed wine and just set the mood and. Listen to metal, I guess. <laughs> That's your pour thing. It, take your box wine and pour it into your like five hundred dollar bottle of wine. There you go. And then pop that open again. There you go. And that. <laughs> hey, can, honey, I popped the bottle before you came in. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that can create the experience of high value, rich tasting wine, and you know that's it's it's sort of that placebo effect it's fine like if that's the thing you're into you want to you want to believe that you're having an experience i mean there is something that to be said i think perhaps critically about the industry that has developed around people who will spend hundreds of dollars on a bottle of wine and really what they're getting out of this is a status symbol like look how wealthy i am look how important i am i can afford hundreds of dollars in wine for just a, a random dinner during the week. And, you know, just how you feel about that, however you want to feel about that, those people spending the money and they want in the way they want to spend their money. It's just, uh, there, there's maybe not that much going on with the actual wine itself. I think that's fair to say. All right. Thank you so much for listening. After this, we'll be rolling where you can send your hate mail or your comments and, and your love. Yeah. So please do that. Tell a friend if you don't mind. It really helps us out. Maybe consider it a review, right? Okay. So we have a listener mail to go over really quick. <laughs> Philip Kennedy, who's actually written in before, he wrote in. He said, hey, guys, the EEG episode hits really close to home for me as a young boy. I was diagnosed with ADHD. I was treated with all forms of stimulant medication, including dexedrine, silert, silert maybe, Ritalin, etc., during the course of which I was strapped to many an EEG machine. The most memorable experience was with um, a doctor who would use a, the, uh, use a therapeutic machine that basically wired me into a version of Pac-Man. Interesting. What? Yeah. Uh, the idea was that the more I focused on the screen, the faster Pac-Man would move around eating dots. So one of those where as he focuses on the screen that that would affect the EEG and then that would control the Pac-Man thing. Uh, there were no ghosts or cherries. It was typically just a spiral square map with a beginning and an end, mostly like an immersion therapy. Uh, there is a similar therapy being used on professional athletes that has them moving a car via EEG. Uh, there are also various EEG sleep studies and studies during various tests. I don't think that in the context given much was accomplished, but a lot of EEG research was going on back then. Thanks again for what you guys do. Best regards. Philip. Yeah, very interesting. I, I got back in touch with him after this and sort of asked you know, would you like to hear an episode on the therapy of EEGs? Because that wasn't something we'd planned on doing. But, you know, he raises an interesting issue is using 
that technology that's essentially sort of an assessment and screening technology as a ther- as a therapy and what's been done inside of that with respect to research. So uh, there's that as another thing. And then he also had some suggestions about t- how we might tackle an episode on ADHD in the future. Cool. Yeah. So uh, cool. Anything else to, to add to that? Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. Very thoughtful I, email. Yeah. I can't take the perspective of everyone, obviously. So it's really cool to hear this sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, it gets me thinking for much longer than we record this podcast. I'm thinking about all the different ways we can go with the ADHD episode. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot, a lot to unpack there. So really appreciate you writing in again and, uh, and very valuable contribution there. I think that again, that, that, that gives us an idea for a future episode and um, some stuff to talk about with how this might be used. I think taking that critical analysis approach, you know, what's here, what isn't here, what still needs to be done. A lot of things to sort of unpack inside of that, but really, really cool. So I appreciate that, Philip. All right. So if you're into this, make sure that you listen afterwards where you can send your hate mail or your love or anything anything like that. Reviews, they really help out. Um, appreciate the support. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. If you again, if you are if you like this episode, you like this uh, this podcast in general, uh, you can really help us out by leaving some good reviews, telling some people you know, uh, trying to spread the word, just trying to uh, to get out there, and make sure we can sustain ourselves. You know, we're moving into uh, wrapping up our second year of this. Just crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. Actually, I went by really fast, and got hopefully years and years to go. Um, you know, the team working hard to to produce episodes and produce higher quality episodes. So. Uh, Need, it takes a lot to, to make it all run, and uh, and we appreciate anything that you can that you can do for us. So um, that's all I've got. Thanks all right. for listening. That said, this is Ryan O. This is Abraham. We're out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. So we know the ideology of the word, right? Etymology. Etymology. Damn it. (laughs) That'd be a fun one to keep in there.